Welcome to the Abundant Grace Podcast, where we discuss the gospel, freedom in Christ, and victorious Christianity. My name is Emily Lewis, and I am so honored that you are here. Sometimes Christianity can feel complicated or become heavy. I'm here to lighten that load. I pray that the chats had on this broadcast will empower and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Hi there, friends. Welcome to this week's episode of the Abundant Grace Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for sitting down to this conversation with Drew Anderson as we talk about Christians and politics and really a lot of where our priorities should be and ways that we can engage politics just with a healthy balance. Drew is the author of no longer self-evident. Are we more American than Christian? He is a pastor, a speaker, liturgist, and advocate, and also husband to Sarah and dad of two. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I learn things and appreciate his perspective that he brings to this not always easy conversation about politics and Christians. So thanks for listening. I hope you appreciate this as much as I did. Hi there, friends. Welcome to this chat. If we haven't met yet, my name is Emily, and I'm a life coach that helps Christians heal their relationship with God. Politics is something that I actually kind of avoid um, in this space some. And I, but last week, Got, I just kind of decided to stop doing that because there's such an intersection between our political views and our Christianity um, that I think it's a valuable topic to uh, bring. So I have with me uh, author Drew Anderson, and we're going to talk about Christians and politics, you know, religion and politics, which, exactly what you're not supposed to talk about, right? <laughs> Today we're going to jump into both of them. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh... A pretty interesting uh, topic to jump into. There can be a lot of controversy and mm-hmm. typically just a lot of misunderstanding. Mm. And so it's a weighty thing to take on. But, um, but we're going to see if we can handle it with grace. Right. Exactly. So I'd like to just start by thanking the people that are watching and uh, watching the replay, watching live and listening. Um, for listening, because it is such a weighty topic, it's one that is so polarized and um, we shy away from it so often because it is uh, so heavy. But I just want to thank everybody for listening and taking the space because it's been a journey to, for me to learn to listen instead of get a, um, abrasive when fr- confronted with an idea. For sure. Yeah. So... We can jump right into the deep end if you want. Yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts specifically around um, America as a Christian nation, because I think that is a huge um, conversation in itself, but that can help us frame what we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, really one of the best resources around this conversation I can point to is Tim Keller has a YouTube video where he spoke um, in Great Britain, in England. He was asked to speak in front of uh, the parliament. And he spoke on how the West, 
the Western world has been influenced by Judeo-Christian values, that it's, it's a part of the influence of Western culture. It's, um, it's just kind of ingrained into a lot of what we think and how we govern. And so um, that, you know, that happened as the church integrated with Roman society in the uh, 400s. And, and so as the church integrates with Rome, we get this Roman Catholic Church, right? And you get the in- integration of government and a lot of Christian thought. So there's some really good things that come out of the integration of Judeo-Christian values with government. So one of them is people being made in the image of God, that people have rights. They have, they have rights endowed to them by their creator. Mm-hmm. That's a huge step forward in humanity, right? I mean, it used to be that no humans had any worth or value previously to Christian, Christian influence at the end of the day. When you have a purely secular view of life and life just ends at death, and really the value of a human is what they can produce or, you know, what they can, what, what, how they govern or something like that, then, then there's not an inherent value to someone's life. Christianity brings that. So there is a Christian influence, a Judeo-Christian worldview influence in the forming of our country. There's no doubt about it. The fact that we have the language around a creator, the fact that we do have language around a God, the fact that um, a good number of those who came to our country early on in the colonies were fleeing religious persecution themselves. They were Christians fleeing countries that were persecuting them or where they were experiencing persecution, usually at the hands of other Christians, funny enough. And so they come to our country, come to the colonies to, you know, get away from that, to, to be refugees in a sense. And then they start a new life over here. So there's a lot of influence in our country around Christian values and around Judeo-Christian thought. Um, a good number of the founders were theists or deists, meaning they believed in a God or they believed in God in general, or they were Christian. So there was a lot of influence there. However, they intentionally set up our nation to not be a theocracy, meaning a Christian nation. Because so many of them fled persecution in nations where Christianity was the religion of that country, they didn't want that, this country to be that. The irony around wanting America to be a Christian nation is we're actually devaluing our founders who intentionally mm. set it up to be a nation that would not put a, a single religion at the center of who it was, at the center of its identity, at the center of its, of its legislating and governing. Now, the influence of Christian values is, is all over our country and continues to be. The whole fight for civil rights is based out of Christianity. I mean, Christian influence and, and the, the influence of the gospel is all over. But to declare America a Christian nation is just not factual. And then overall, it's not helpful. It's not helpful to the cause of Christianity. It's not helpful to understanding what's going on in our country and the kind of shifting in cultural values that we're seeing. Um, it's just not helpful. It, um, it makes people usually think in very narrow, limited terms, very black mm-hmm. and white terms. When, um, when they need to be thinking in a much broader perspective. They need to be able to understand our society as the early Christians understood 
the society they lived in. And they need to be able to differentiate their Christianity, their faith, from law and legislation and governance. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into a little later. We, our faith should play a role in how we interact in those places, in the places of law and government. Yes, Christian faith should play a role. However, we cannot take our Christian faith and then impose it upon a country that is not a Christian nation and that we wouldn't want to be a Christian nation, Mm. just as we wouldn't want it to be uh, any other religious nation. Because at the other end of making a nation a specific ideology, when a nation is based in a specific ideology, one, it refuses to be a democracy, which is what we want. But two, it, it breeds persecution, right? It, that, right? The only option on the other end of that is persecution of someone or usually multiple groups because sure. then the only the single one group that one controls everything and they force everyone to either become what they are or to at, at least denounce what they are. And so mm-hmm. it gets... It's not good. That's, that didn't look like Jesus very much at that point. So, so we wouldn't want that. Um, and so it's, it's owning the fact. We've got to, as Christians, own the fact our nation is not a Christian nation and that we really don't want it to be a Christian nation. I think that's really an, a mind-blowing kind of a fact that we don't want it to be because we think we really want it to be. Um, and we, I love that you mentioned it's not helpful. Um, maybe you could go into that a little bit more. But when we see um, people who are not saved, who do not have God dwelling inside of them, acting like they don't, I think we come at it like shocked that they are acting the way they are. And we're trying to steer our country in a different direction through um, legislature, through policy, rather than, well, how how can we reach them with the gospel? Mm -hmm. And it's a both-and idea. So, I mean, we're not throwing out the idea that legislation and governance is important. We're, we're saying it's a both-and. You're not going to win people's hearts through legislation and governance. It ain't going to happen. You can't convince someone to go to the speed that they're supposed to go just because you put a speed limit sign up. Mm-hmm. You, you can't do it. You can't convince them to do it. They can choose to do it because they see that you've posted a speed limit and they're believing you that that's the best speed for them on that road. So they can choose to do it, but you can't force it. That's why we have to have law enforcement, right? That's why we have to police because they actually have to have people who say, no, you can't go that fast on this road. Mm-hmm. Um, so laws and legislation and governance will always be incomplete. It will always be incomplete. It's a part of the picture, but it's incomplete if it's the only part of the picture that you're looking at. There's always going to have to be a part of the picture, and it's the bigger part of the picture, Jesus says, is about people's hearts. It's about who they are when they're alone, when they're by themselves. Do they, do they follow the rules when no one's watching? That's what Jesus is after. That's what we as Christians are after. Are we going to be those kind of people? Are we going to encourage others to be those kind of people. The laws and the governance is, is, is like the after effect of that. That should be the goal. And, and so we, we've got to hold those things in balance. And it's not helpful when you try to force laws on people 
who don't, and those people don't want to follow those laws. They have zero interest in following those laws. In fact, they're pretty, con- they're pretty sure that those laws are actually hurting them. Mm. When they believe that, you're, you're not going to change anything. You have a revolution on your hands, maybe. But you're not going to convince them all of a sudden that these laws are good for them when they genuinely deep down believe that they're not. That not only they don't want to follow them, they believe that these are not good laws, that mm. the laws need to change. Right. If, they, if they believe that, you're not going to just somehow convince them by rule of law or forcing them or military intervention. It's not going to change. Or even electing someone new into an office. It's not, it's not going to change what the people believe and where their hearts are at. And right. so the, that's a part of it. We've got, we've got to be ready to work through law, but law isn't going to fix the problem um, that's, that's going on that we see. And, and, and we could name a number of problems, but here's a great, a great example is around the, the issues of race going on in our country right now. So we all know that the civil rights movement happened in the 60s and 70s, right? right? Many people would say it's still continuing today, but that's, that's when it really hit its, the height of the civil rights movement, 60s and 70s. And we get forced integration of schools, right? Mm-hmm. We start getting laws around hiring practices so that you're not you know, being racist in your hiring and a job. We get all these laws that get enacted. But the laws don't just all of a sudden change people's hearts. Just because people were forced to go to the same school, it didn't all of a sudden make them love each other, didn't make them move into each other's communities and have their children play together, right? Martin Luther King Jr., his dream was not if we can just get the laws changed. No, when he shares the I Have a Dream speech, he's talking about heart change, where people's children and grandchildren are, are loving one another and are in community with one another. He saw something far beyond a law change. The law change needed to happen. It was a part of it, but it was an incomplete picture. And, and he gave the full picture of what it would look like to see transformation in our society around race, we're still fighting a lot of those battles today because we haven't actually had a lot of heart and community change. We've had forced laws in a lot of areas, but we haven't actually had people sit back and go, well, wait a minute. Why do I still live and, and lead my life in a mostly single ethnic space? Like, why, why, why do I not have friends that are of different ethnicities? Why are my kids not playing at their houses? What, what do, what do my kids' birthday parties look like? And, and if I live in a city that's diverse, why don't they look like the city? Those are the issues, like, until those things change, the laws are only an incomplete solution. Right. So how can we move forward um, for solutions with our opinions and our ideas and assuming that we're all moving forward, growing and listening and learning? How can we do that without making the other people with other opinions and the other party, the, like, the enemy, like the person yeah. we're working against. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the first thing we always have to do is what um, the scripture talks about with the log in your own eye and the speck in the other, right? We always have to start with evaluating our own lives, right? Mm-hmm. Once we enter into a point of disagreement over something, let's say a policy, let's say it's around the issue of pro-choice versus pro-life, which those are, terrible terms at the end of the day to describe what people believe. But that issue of, of life and um, the issue of life at birth specifically. So 
we enter into a, a discussion with someone, we enter into a debate with someone, we're clearly at different and come to different conclusions, right? The first thing we have to do is say, hey, I'm not perfect in the conclusion I'm drawing. There's, there's likely something flawed about the conclusion I'm drawing. It's an incomplete picture, potentially. So I have to come at it humbly and say, okay, I, I likely don't have all the information. I likely don't all, know all the answers. If this person is a genuine believer, like I know them to be a genuine believer, then they've reached this complete conclusion with the same Holy Spirit that I have. So we've got we to dialogue and figure out how. How did you get to where you're at? Even if I think that they're wrong, mm -hmm. I've got to understand how they got there. And so I have to come at it with humility. I have to come at it with empathy. And I have to ask a lot of questions. I have to, I have to say, okay, this person... I'm believing that they are genuine when they have reached the conclusion that they've reached, that they're not doing it flippantly, that they're not doing it just to argue with me. Like they genuinely believe what they believe. So I need to figure out why, where, how did they get there? Why did they get there? And almost always, if we'll come at it in that way, what will end up happening, we may not convince the other person to change. They may not convince us to change. But what we usually almost always end up happening is we get a more holistic picture of what the real issue is that we're debating. We think it's one issue. We think it's this black and white. If you don't believe like I do, you're on the wrong side of history. Almost all the time, it's a, there's a much more holistic viewpoint to what's going on here. And like with the issue of life, it's a big issue, y'all. If we believe a, a, that a, a baby should be carried to full term and deserves life after after birth, then, then we've got to believe that uh, we got to talk about the death penalty, right? What, what do we do about the fact that we're killing people on the other end? What do we, what do, we do with all these other questions around life? What do we do if, if, if a mother's unable to care for the child that she's about to have born? You know, like what, what do we do with that? That's a life issue. What do we do with issues around justice where we're seeing people killed on and killed for what seems to be no good reason. It's an issue of life. Like all of a sudden, I say I'm pro-life. I've, I've got to start thinking through this from a holistic point of view. If I'm going to be pro-life, I've got to be pro a, a, a child that starts in, as an embryo's life from that point on. And I've got to hold myself, my own views, my own political party accountable to that perspective of what it means. And, and so that comes up in almost every discussion. Almost every discussion mm -hmm. that comes up that's political is a much more nuanced, holistic discussion than what people are making it out to be. Mm -hmm. Because here's, here's the truth. In Christianity, grace wins the day, right? There's a great saying about, you know, in, um, in essentials, you know, unity, and in non-essentials, you know, grace. So there's this idea that like in the essential beliefs of the faith, we got to have some things down, right? Jesus was the son of God. Jesus died and rose again. Like there's some essentials. There's a good bit of non-essentials. And we got to have a lot of grace because I'm going to disagree with someone on, hey, I think we need to have bishops and we need to have an Episcopal structure to our church. And they disagree. They think they should just have a local church with local elders. Well, that's a non-essential issue. We're going to have to have a lot of grace. Well, these political issues are almost all non-essential issues at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so for us, we've got to lead with grace. However, that's not how a politician gets elected. In our society, you create controversy 
you create black and white. It's me and them. It's us against them. Mm. It's either you're for them or you're for me. And that's how they get elected. So we've got to understand all of these issues will be presented to us as black and white. They will be because that's how someone thinks they're going to get elected. Mm -hmm. But as a Christian, it's my job to have enough discernment and to have enough grace and to lead with empathy, right? It's my job to act like Jesus, not to act like the politicians, not to act like the political pundits, not to act like the people I see on TV or on social media. It's, it's not my job to act like the accuser to act like the Satan, to act like this divisive spirit. It's my job to seek unity, to lead with love. And, and so I've got to come at it from a completely different angle or I'm not actually living out the gospel. I'm not actually living out my, the Christ-like faith that, I, that I'm proclaiming is the reason why I'm fighting about that issue, right? I'm saying, I'm a Christian. You've got to believe this way. And yet the way I'm doing it is very unchristian. And so there's a hypocrisy there. There's a discrepancy there. I'm missing something if I'm not acting like a Christian in the discussions and debates about issues that I think are foundational to Christianity. Right. I love what you said earlier about um, just approaching it with humility that the other person is also um, a believer, following the same standard, the same uh, final authority. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, as, as a statement I made last week, just that because we believe um, the Bible is our final authority and God's what God says is the final authority, we tend to believe that our conclusions are also like just as Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I just thought of something. Once I, I'll, I'll cover that a little bit, and then I'll even address our interactions with people who we know are not believers and hold a different position than us. Because I think that's also helpful. But yeah, yeah, around this idea that um, the Bible is our final authority, and so we just kind of make the leap or the jump to the assumption that then my conclusion about what the Bible says is also the final authority. There's a lot of problems with that, right? First of all, the scriptures were not written in our language, in our culture, by people we know. (laughs) (laughs) These scriptures are magnificently mysterious and beautiful and full of culture of their day and language of the time they were written and inspired by the Holy Spirit to to make the test of time, to, to be applicable even today in a different culture, in a different language with different people reading it. Mm -hmm. That is a hundred percent true. Holy Spirit inspired. However, the gap between when they were written and when we are reading them, the Holy Spirit has to help us bridge that gap because it's a real gap. It's no different than if we just had someone of a different language and we're trying to communicate with that person of a different language. Mm. We're not just trying to understand their language. We're trying to understand their culture because just because they speak Spanish, if I learn Spanish, it doesn't mean I understand the culture they're coming from that speaks Spanish because the culture of Honduras is different than the culture of Mexico. And so, so we got to be really careful in how we say, Hey, because I read this passage this way. We've got to be gracious. We've got to be careful. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to understand that there are influences coming out of our lives that are influencing us in how we read the Bible. Now, they could be helping us correctly read the Bible. That's true. But they could be causing us to read it a little off. We may not even realize it. Mm-hmm. And this is the importance of the cloud of witnesses in Scripture. This is the importance of the church, like Big C, in the interpretation of the scriptures. Like we need to be listening to voices that were interpreting the scriptures in 100 AD. We need to be listening to voices that were interpreting scripture in 1500 AD. We need to be listening to voices that are interpreting the scripture today. And we need to be listening to the full scale, just history of the Christian church, including the modern you know, theologians of today that are all interpreting the scripture together. We need to have this thing on stereo. Right, we we've got to understand that any time we take a scripture and rip it, just rip it out of place and say, "I know exactly what that says," we should be skeptical of ourselves at that point, because scripture teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things. So, like we already know, we have the capability to mess things up if we're honest. That's the truth of humanity, the truth of human nature, the truth of the gospel. Is I've got the capability to mess this up. So I'm not, I'm not going to be overly self-conscious, overly self-judgmental, always thinking I'm wrong. That's not the answer. But I'm also not going to be overly confident. I'm not going to just always assume my opinion's the correct opinion. And I'm not going to always believe that just because I've interpreted something correctly, um, that someone could not have interpreted it correctly in a different way. Sure. So... We've, we've got to manage to balance these things. Like, okay, just because I believe the Bible to be true and I know the Holy Spirit's helping me interpret it, it doesn't mean that I'm always right every time I interpret it and I've got to allow other voices to speak into that. And even if I am right, like this is always the key, even if I am right, I still don't have the right to treat someone in an unchristian way just because I'm right about something. Mm-hmm. And that leads me into the, the point about not just disagreeing with other Christians who are genuine believers and disagree on political things. But what about the non-Christian? What about the person who is upfront that they're not a believer? They, they don't read the Bible. They have no interest in Jesus. And they hold a different opinion than us on a political issue. Our calling is to love them, right? I mean, Jesus is abundantly clear that the calling of being a disciple means that I love those who consider themselves enemies. If they consider themselves an enemy of me, or even I'm, you know, still sinful enough that I have enemies, like that, that's questionable. We shouldn't have enemies. Like that's really the truth of the scripture. But sometimes we do, if we're honest, we're still in, incomplete and sinful people. And so even if I consider someone else an enemy, definitely if they consider me an enemy, if they're not a believer, Jesus says, I love them and I pray for them. Like, I love them with the love of him, of Jesus. I'm willing to lay down my life for them because Jesus laid down his life for those who didn't love him. And so, like, even interacting with someone who politically disagrees with me and has no interest in a Christian worldview, I still don't have the right to treat them in the way that we're seeing too many people be treated by Christians just because they disagree with me. My job is to love them. My job is to pray for them. And 
sure, I can engage with them intellectually and in a debate setting. But the way I go about it better look like Jesus. And we got to remember, because the favorite thing right now is Jesus flipping tables, right? Everyone wants to flip tables. Everyone wants to be the Jesus that flips tables. You got to remember, Jesus flipped tables on his own people. He didn't flip tables on the Romans, right? Mm, that's so good. And so we, we don't get to just go around flipping tables. And he only did it once, by the way, people. Like the majority of his ministry was not flipping tables. Yeah. Um, the majority of his ministry was getting down on his knees to meet the woman caught in sin, right? Get, sitting at the well with the woman who was trying to make sense of everything. Uh, yeah. Running to people who are hurt people running to him that were hurt and him receiving them. That's the Jesus across the gospel stories. And so, yes, Jesus flips tables in one, one scene in the entirety of the gospels. He does it of his own people. And he, even in doing it, even in doing it, I fully believe he was doing it in love. And so we, we have to be careful in, how we're assuming our opinions about the Bible are correct. They could be, but we can't always make that assumption right off the bat. And we mostly have to be careful in how we then interact with people. Even if we, beyond a shadow of a doubt, say, I know that I'm correct about this in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change the calling and how I'm supposed to interact with them. Right. Yeah. So how would you advocate that we get involved with having conversations, making policy changes even, without tying ourselves to a political party or our actions, what we're doing. How can we go about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very important. First of all, I think Christian engagement in politics is, is vitally important. Absolutely mm -hmm. vitally important. I think we should be engaged in political issues, in the political context. I think we should be engaged in law and in governance, and in all facets of, of our society's life, thousand percent. I think we need to constantly be asking ourselves, if Jesus was in my position, if he chose to come to the world and be a politician, if he chose in America today, if he chose to come to the world and be a lawyer in America today, if he chose to come to the world and be an activist in America today, how would he do it, right? And so we begin to reflect on how Jesus handled situations, how he carried himself, the life he, he led, the kind of people he surrounded himself with, the way he went out of his way to love people and show hospitality. So we, we always have to be doing that self-evaluation. How, how would Jesus live this out? If Jesus was living through me as I'm engaging, how would he do it? Um, and, and, and then we've got to be very clear when we when we are a part of a political party, a part of an activist movement, none of these things are bad. Um, we've got to be very clear where I, our identity is, that our identity is in Christ, not in the political movement, the activist, or the political party, the activist movement. My identity is not in a political position that I hold, whatever. That's not where my identity is. And so I can differentiate myself from those things. That, that if my political party gets attacked, it's not them attacking me and it's not them attacking Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so I'm able to differentiate myself. There's some healthy boundaries there so that I can not get offended and upset and defensive when those things happen. 
I can remain calm. I can engage at the level of discussion and civil debate and not get into these heated, just name-calling, divisive kind of things. Um, and, and, then, and then the third step, once we've dealt with like all of that, like, am I going to really be like Jesus? Can I root my identity in Jesus even when I'm in those contexts? Then we just have to ask ourselves, where in the political scene is God calling me to be involved? Is it as a voter? Like that's as involved as he's calling me to get. Is he calling me to vote a certain way? Is he calling me to actually run for an office? Is he calling me to advocate for certain political positions and law changes and all of that sort of thing? And if we'll, if we'll view that as a calling, if, if we will go into it as a calling and view it as a ministry, as an opportunity to infuse the gospel, to take the gospel and say, what are gospel principles, gospel ways of living, and how do I share them with the people I'm interacting with, through the laws that I'm advocating for, through the changes that I'm advocating for? How can I infuse the gospel through this policy, through this political advocacy, through this law change? I think that's going to give us the guidance that we need, um, that, that, that will allow us to enact better policies mm-hmm. and actually uh, be Christ-like in the process of doing it. Yeah. Because what, what, we're just, what we're seeing too much of is that people are just being pulled. Um, it's like in James where it talks about the waves and being tossed to and fro with the waves. And that's what it feels like nowadays is too many people are just being tossed by the waves and they're allowing their emotion, emotions are important, but they're allowing their emotions to rule them or they're allowing their, um, their anger to, to really be front and center and not their love. Um, and, and they're getting tossed back and forth by all this political stuff and they're not grounded in Christ. They're not grounded in a calling that they are entering into those contexts as missionaries of the gospel to a group of people, in this case, to our own country. And, and so then they're not coming at these issues with that mindset. And they're not saying, what's the best way to display Christ through this law? Mm-hmm. They're saying, how does this law benefit me and people like me? And, yeah. and too many people are doing that across every spectrum of every issue, is that they're coming at it from a very selfish place. And they're saying, how can I make sure there are laws that are enacted that benefit me and people like me? And the Christian says, how do I enact laws that benefit Jesus and that show the love of Jesus to people? Like, mm. how do I enact those laws? And so there's, there's going to be a much more gracious understanding of how law and governance happens when you're coming at it from that viewpoint. And it's going to allow you to fully enter into those spaces that are very difficult. I have friends that are Christians in politics right now. And, and they're very difficult spaces to be a state senator or a local, a local even mayor or city council person. Um, these, these are difficult. You know, I'm not, I don't know enough like national politicians. I don't know any, I don't think. But, but the politicians I do know, like it's very difficult. It's a very difficult thing. You're putting yourself in the middle of a storm in a sense. But if you're able to do it from, hey, I'm going to try to work as hard as I can to make sure any law I'm supporting, any law I'm advocating for comes from a whole perspective of who people are and comes from a whole perspective of how Jesus would love people, then 
then you've done the best you can. Not every politician is going to be able to affect all the change that they would like to. Um, they're going to have non-Christians in their political party that are going to advocate for things being put into the law that, that they wouldn't want as a believer. And then they're going to have to ask themselves, I don't want that in this bill that they're trying to get passed. But if I don't support this bill getting passed, I may not get the thing that is important, that right. is going to help change lives and show Jesus' love. That's a, that's a tough call, right? That's just a tough call. I'm not going to judge anyone for having to make that kind of a tough call at that point. They're going to do the best they can with the Holy Spirit's guidance at that point. But, but these, are these are tough days where, where there's a lot of manipulation happening. There's a lot of under-the-counter kind of stuff happening. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to believe that most of the Christian politicians aren't, aren't involved in it. And if they are, you know, they need to repent and they need to get out of that. But I want to believe that they aren't. But even if they aren't, people that they're aligned with could be. Mm -hmm. and, and so that makes it very difficult for them because they're saying, hey, this is a law that's going to benefit people. I really believe in it. I think the love of Jesus could be shown through it, but it's got some pieces of the bill that are not good. And I know they're not good because people are doing underhanded things. But if it doesn't pass, then we also don't get the good stuff. And so it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's almost a no-win situation, but they're trying their best to be Christ-like in the political realm. And I think that's important. What you mentioned about um, making or advocating for policies or um, leaders that would benefit us, I don't, I don't think I realized I was even doing that. We just, um, sometimes we get in our echo chamber or our, our like our, on our mission and we forget that, um, how does this impact my neighbor? How does this impact somebody in a different part of the country? And living in a rural area, um, it's easy to point at uh, the cities and be like, they don't know how life works here. But then it, it goes both ways with our policy we're not paying attention, at least I wasn't, paying attention to, oh, wait, like, how does this actually impact everyone? Because I think it benefits me. Um, and I need to broaden my horizon and my scope mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we have to remember, we're not completely, the goal isn't to just completely self-sacrifice our own needs necessarily, although the irony is that's the call of the gospel ultimately, right, is that I'm going to be self-sacrificing, first and foremost. But it doesn't mean I have to say, okay, my needs don't matter at all. Right. It, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying my needs aren't the only needs. I'm loving neighbor as I love myself. So, like, I love myself. The only way loving neighbor as yourself works is that you actually love yourself. Yes. So, like, I'm loving neighbor as myself. I'm, I'm loving others and I'm loving myself. So, I'm concerned with all of the needs. I'm just not only concerned with my needs. And the needs of those of people who are like me. And it's really the only way our society can function anyways if we're going to just function as a democratic society. That's the irony, is that built into the DNA of who the original founders built this country to be, that's really the only way it works best anyways. Mm. But especially as Christians, we've got to say, okay, that we, we especially of all people, if we're going to get caught on one end of the spectrum of selfishness or self-sacrificing, we better get caught on the self-sacrificing side of that issue, mm. right? Like if, if I'm going to end up making a mistake one way or the other, I better make it the way that looks like Jesus and not looks like selfish. 
And um, that's hard. That's really hard to do because you're potentially enacting a law. You know, you're potentially supporting a politician or a law that you say, you know what? I, I don't know if I completely 100% agree with everything. Um, I, I, it's a tough thing, especially as a parent. You're saying, hey, what kind of America do I want my kids to grow up in? Yeah. You're making some really difficult calls each time you vote for someone, but we've got to be careful we're doing it in a Christ-like way. Yeah. So before we end, I'd love to hear just your take. It's kind of a hot topic to talk about, you know, the gospel, especially for social justice. Um, like the gospel is the answer. And being, I, I don't know if you've, we've talked about my story, but like figuring out that the gospel was for everything was life-changing. Like this amazing, um, you could call it like personal revival happened. And so it's, I would love to say the gospel is enough. Can you unpack that a little bit? How is the gospel yeah. enough for this? And how can we yeah. put our feet to it? Yeah, so the gospel is definitely enough. But it's how the gospel, it's the implications of the gospel, how it fully works itself out in our world through action that makes it enough. Mm. And so, James, I mean, James reminds us that faith without works is dead. So it starts with faith. Like, I, I have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus saves me out of my own sin. Like, the faith in the gospel, in the good news, is, is enough to get me started. It's not enough to finish the race. Like, works have to come. Action has to come. Life change, how I actually treat people, the, the, the society that I look to build, actually has to change for the gospel to have taken full root in my life and to fully work itself out. So it's enough. It's just the full work of the gospel is enough. Not just the initial, I get to go to heaven because I prayed a prayer part of the gospel. That's part of it. Like once I believe in Jesus, yes, in that moment, there's a connection to God that, that will last throughout eternity. But I have to persevere in that for the rest of my life. And I have to continue on this path of, um, becoming more and more like Jesus and the gospel has to work itself out in our lives. And so when we say, you know, just preach the gospel, right? That'll be the response a lot of the times when we get into these debates around social justice issues. And especially to someone like me where I hold a pastoral role, it's like, why are you speaking about that? Just preach the gospel. And it's like, well, actually preaching the gospel means I have to talk about justice issues. Like that is the full work of the gospel. That's actually what the Old Testament prophets get onto the Old Testament people of God about is like, hey, you're believing all the right things. You're checking all the right boxes. You're making all the right sacrifices. And yet you don't care about the people. Like you actually don't even care about the things God cares about. God himself makes the greatest critique of his people where he says, listen, your lips are saying all the right things, but your hearts are far from me. Right? Mm -hmm. Jesus yeah. backs that up in the gospels where he says, you can, one day there's going to be many people who come and say, Lord, Lord. And yet, I'm going to say, depart from me because I don't actually know you. You haven't actually d done the works. Mm. You haven't actually proved it hasn't worked itself out in your life. The gospel hasn't. And so when, when the response of, well, just preach the gospel, we are preaching the gospel. If we're, if we're advocating for justice issues, we're preaching the complete gospel. We're preaching a gospel that says, yes, Jesus came to save but he came to sanctify and he also came to have these ripple effects in the world where his kingdom impacts the entire world, even the world that doesn't know him 
and doesn't know how to know him, doesn't want to know him, they still get the ripple effects and impact because of the gospel's influence in society. And that's the fullness of the gospel picture that we see. We, we, we see in scripture this, this gospel that, that infiltrates the world. Like really, I mean, it's like a military infiltration of the mm. world. That's Jesus comes to conquer sin and death. That's military language. And he infiltrates the world with the gospel. And he says, the kingdom of God is here when this happens. Like it's already here. It's already infiltrating the world through the Holy Spirit's presence through us. And so the outworkings of the gospel are social justice. It doesn't mean that we conflate correct interpretations of scripture with every modern ideology that exists. Mm-hmm. That's, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean just because I enter into the social justice space, I'm going to agree with everything that's going on in the social justice space. That's true of anywhere else in the world. No matter where I go in the world as a Christian, I'm not going to 100% agree with any of it. And so, of course, that's true in the social justice space. However, if I don't enter the social justice space, then what I'm missing out on is the fullness of the gospel to be worked out through me in that space. I'm missing out on the opportunity to address real-life justice issues that are going on in our world. And and I'm just kind of preaching at them. Yeah. And, and, and that would essentially be the same as going up to someone who's hungry, right? Who's starving, who's homeless, who has like practical needs that need to be met and just preaching at them, never meeting their needs. And then just hoping that they accept Jesus. And Jesus teaches in the scripture, that's not enough. So does Paul. Paul teaches, mm-hmm. hey, true, like sincere religion is taking care of the orphans and the widows and the poor. Right. So like, hey, y'all, this is right in our scriptures. Like, we have to act on things in the world that we see that are not right. It doesn't mean that we're going to make the whole world right. No, no, no. Jesus will do that one day. We know that. That's not our job. Our job isn't to be Jesus. But we do have to address them when they pop up. And we do have to enter into those spaces and be a part of a change that needs to happen um, where we can show the love of Christ. Because when we say just preach the gospel... The gospel is transformative, but it should start in our hearts. So the, the gospel transforms us, transforms the actions that we take, and then we can put feet to it and change the world through our transformation that God has done inside of us rather right. than asking the world to change. Because I feel like it is just preaching at them. Like, would you please change? Would you do better? Yeah, yeah. That's not the gospel. We're 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 asking them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which they can't. Um, right. So we, we need to be transformed so that we can um, help them be transformed. Yeah. A great image of this for me is always Jesus's interaction with the woman caught in sin, right? So you get this, you get the religious people trying to trap Jesus. They bring a woman caught in sin, throw her at Jesus's feet. The law says to stone her. That's what the law says. Jesus knows that's what the law says. And they say, so what are you going to do about it, Jesus, right? Here's our trap. We've got you trapped. And you notice Jesus doesn't answer them right away. He gets down. He was likely already down, I think is how the story goes. But he's on her level. He's right there with her. He defends her first. He corrects their understanding of who God is first and says, oh, well, then the first person who doesn't have sin here can throw the first rock. Of course, he's the only one there without sin. He doesn't pick up 
He doesn't even pick up a rock. They all had rocks. They were ready. Well, of course, they all drop their rocks and they leave. He then addresses the issue going on in her life, right? He doesn't leave her without him addressing her. But the first thing he did was meet her where she was. Like, that was the first thing he did. The first thing he did was defend her. The first thing he did was correct the justice issue. And don't neglect that that was a justice issue. That was a, a criminal punishment. That was execution that he was addressing. That was a legal issue he was addressing. It was a justice issue in his mm. day. He addresses it. Then he comes to her and he says, hey, go and sin no more. Like, be in a relationship. Know me and know me fully. And don't get caught up in the sin of this world. But he addressed the justice issue. He was there on her level. And that's the gospel. That's gospel transformation in our lives. When we're able to see an issue and we're able to insert ourselves in it, even though we may not be popular, even though people may get upset and walk away like the Pharisees did with Jesus, we still say, no, this is what the Christ-like thing would be to do. And then now I'm going to get to know that people that are dealing with it. Then now I'm going to take the gospel to them, but I'm going to deal with the justice issue. And, um, and that's how we see gospel transformation work itself out. Awesome. Thank you for your time, Drew. Yeah, of course. Uh, this is a helpful conversation um, that we can continue to listen to each other and learn and uh, put feet to the gospel and be the, I guess, for the cliche, be the change we want to see in the, in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thankful to be a part of it. Certainly an incomplete conversation. <laughs> we haven't said everything that needs to be said. There's some great, amazing groups out there that are doing some great things with some great resources. One of the best ones out there right now is And Campaign. If you haven't followed And Campaign and aren't keeping up with them, they're incredible. Go check out the And Campaign um, and many others. Many other Christians are doing some great work and helping people balance what it means to be faithful to the scriptures and what it means to seek change in our world. Mm. Cool. I'll check them out. Um, can you tell everybody where they can follow you if they like and yeah. tell them about your book and your, the companion podcast? Yeah. So you can follow me on all social media platforms. When I say all, I really only have three, but um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, it's all the same thing as what I am here on Instagram, Drew, Sarah, Cam, Jax. It's our family names. Um, you're going to get uh, my family life, my personal life, but then you also get stuff about ministry and about the world that I'll be posting as well. I did write a book last year. It was a blog series at first that was just centered around Lent. And it really was a reflection on 15 years of my adult, pretty much adult years, working through my own faith, kind of making faith my own. And it, and it centered around the question, do I look more American than Christian? And so that was a blog series last year. It turned into a book during the summer as well, which was amazing. I didn't expect that to happen. The book is called No Longer Self-Evident are we more American than Christians? So no longer self-evident. You can find it on Amazon. Um, if you just search for no longer self-evident and my name, Drew Anderson, you'll find it. It'll pop up. Um, paper to back is pretty cheap. You can also get it as an e-reader as well. And then we decided as I was um, sharing the book with friends and different people, they kept asking me stories to tell them stories about it because it is a short book. It's a short read. It's meant to be that way. Very short chapters. Uh, very response-oriented because I wanted to make it more of a discipleship resource. So there's questions and different things to interact with. And because it's short, I don't go into a lot of the why I wrote chapters, and I don't tell a lot of stories about where the chapter's coming from because they all come out of personal experience. 
And so someone said, hey, you need to record that. And so I had a friend of mine who does some podcasting, um, and he has several podcasts. And I asked him if he would just produce a podcast companion for the book. So if he would just interview me for uh, nine episodes, which is the introduction, the seven chapters, and the conclusion. And it goes along with the book. You can listen to the podcast by itself. You don't have to have the book, but it really is meant to be a companion. And you can find the podcast, No Longer Self-Evident, same name, um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find it there. And so um, I'm an open book, meaning, and that's meant as a pun, I didn't mean it that way, but I am an open book. Like if you interact with my book or my podcast and you want to talk about it, if you disagree about something, like whatever it is, just message me. I'm, I, I'd love to have that conversation. Um, love to engage people at this level of really getting at our identity. Are we living out of a Christian identity, a Christ-like identity? Or have we really allowed our Americanness to take the front seat? And, mm -hmm. um, and, and drilling down deeply on that is going to help us be more like Christ moving forward. And our country desperately needs that right now. It needs a church that looks like Jesus more than ever right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your wisdom sharing with us. And um, hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good day as well. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Abundant Grace Podcast. I would love it if you would share this episode with a friend so that they can hear this encouragement and be empowered in their walk with Jesus as well. It would also mean the world to me if you would leave a rating and review on Apple for the Abundant Grace Podcast. It really does make a world of difference in getting this podcast into other people's ears so they can be equipped in their relationship with God as well. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. You can find me hanging out on Instagram, emily.abundantgrace, or you can send me an email, hello at emilyklewis.com. That's emily, the letter K, L-O-U-I-S.com. And until next week, remember that God's grace abounds and won't ever run out.